Being on mission requires self-sacrifice, doesn't it? I remember a story of a missionary, and I don't remember the country, I don't remember a lot of the details, but one part of that story I'll never forget. But they were missionaries, I think it was in South America, somewhere uh, reaching out to an unreached people group, maybe in, in jungle, or if you want to be more modern, rainforest. You know, they were, they were out, and so they're reaching out to this tribe, and they're there, and, and these tribal members take them out to find what they consider a delicacy. And they hunt, and they find this delicacy. I have a picture of something like this delicacy, if you guys want to put that up. Mm-mm, doesn't that look good? Live, big, juicy, raw grub, and they give it to the lady to eat. Now, see, I still wonder in the back of my mind if they're still laughing at these missionaries, and this was all a joke. But <clears throat> nevertheless, they give it to her, and she does not want to offend them. She's there to reach them with the gospel, and so denying herself, she takes the grub and takes a bite. And as something green is oozing from the side of her mouth, she looks at her partner missionary and says, Don't do it. <laughs> But she had done it. Being on mission requires self-sacrifice. Maybe not eating grubs. I hope not in Swansboro. I'm not sure I love you that much. You might just have to understand. But today we see Paul sacrificing himself for the gospel and taking a vow. And this may look strange to some of us. We may not have a drawer for this in, in our Christianity. But he's taking a vow and he's doing all things or trying to become all things to all people that the unity of the church may be preserved and that the gospel may go forth. And we're going to look at this, think about this vow a little bit, talk about it, sort of expand upon it. So try to draw some profitable application to us. But the main point I want us to see as we look at verses 17 to 26 is we, like Paul, should be willing to be all things to all people for the sake of the church and the gospel. We, like Paul, should be willing to be all things to all people for the sake of the church <clears throat> and the gospel. First, look at Paul's report. Turn me down just a tad, Joel. I think I'm a little hot. Everybody still hear that? All right. Paul's report in Jerusalem. Look at 17 to 22. When we had come to Jerusalem, stop. Remember all the warnings he's received not to go that did not deter him because he was convinced in his spirit that the Holy Spirit was calling him to go. And this is, this is just part of completing the journey. I mean, he's gone out from the church on a missionary journey and now he's coming back to give a report in Jerusalem, to bring a gift to Jerusalem, and, and many other, other purposes. But it says this, When we come to Jerusalem, the brethren or the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us. Luke is, has his, his person in the, in the narrative here. 
On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Now think back to chapter 15, the Jerusalem council. Same set of people, right? They're in Jerusalem. James is the leader. The elders are there. And it says, after greeting them, now watch, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So think about that. In the missionary journeys that we've seen him take and all of the protection and blessing and provision and, and persecution and trouble that has gone with those journeys, but in town after town after town, there, there were healings, there were miracles, but there was churches planted because people were converted. And not just little bitty numbers of people. People were converted to such extent that churches are planted in a lot of these cities. So they're rejoicing in what God has done through the gospel and they're sharing it with the church in Jerusalem. And they are rejoicing. When they heard the detailed account, notice it said, Paul said one by one, when they heard the detailed account of what God had accomplished through the gospel, primarily among the Gentiles, because Paul's ministry, you see, if you read Galatians, it's to the Gentiles. <clears throat> They are rejoicing because God had saved a great number of people and planted a great number of churches. The mission is being accomplished. The gospel is going forth. People are being converted and brought to faith in Jesus Christ. That's still happening today. Numbers larger than ever before. We just don't hear about that the way we should around the world, and in friendly and hostile countries. The gospel is going forth. God's people are being saved and brought to Himself. Nothing can stop God from accomplishing His purpose in every country on this planet. All authority in heaven and earth is given to the Lord Jesus Christ, and He has sent His church to preach the gospel when it's wanted and when it's not. And he's accomplishing his purpose. And that's what Paul was relating to the church there in Gentile about how God had used him among the Gentiles and how it had been fruitful. And it says this, when they, when they heard it, they glorified God. They're giving credit to the right place. It's not Paul's brilliance or, or ingenuity or anything like that. It's God working through the instrument of his people to accomplish his purpose. Saved the enemy, the great enemy of the church, and used him to plant numerous churches. So they're rejoicing. They're excited about what God has done on, uh, through Paul on these journeys. And they're glorifying God. And it, then they said to him in verse 20, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Look at that. How many thousands? Now we've seen that in the book of Acts. Remember Acts chapter 2. I mean, there are some 3,000 converted on that, in that first message, and that's probably just counting the guys. Thousands are coming to faith. Jerusalem is, 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 have been overturned, and the world is being overturned by the gospel. And James is telling Paul, yes, God is at work everywhere, including here with the gospel. See, there's one need. I have to make this plain because there are people out there that say very silly things and some of them are on TV. There's one need in humanity and that is salvation. There's one need among the Gentiles lost needing a Savior. Jews lost needing a Savior. 
Jews don't have a special route in around Jesus. One gospel for everybody, Jew and Gentile, coming to faith in Jesus through the preaching of that one gospel. My goodness, Paul, if you read Romans, please read Romans. If you go into chapters 9 and 10 and on, you see his burden for his Jewish brothers and sisters. He rehearses their blessings as being God, you know, people of the covenant, having the covenants, having the, the scriptures. But he says, I would give up my salvation for them to be converted. I would have myself be cut off. They don't know God. In general, they're seeking to establish their own righteousness so they don't submit to the free gift of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. See, that's Paul's burden throughout the book of Romans. But if you look at just chapters 1 through halfway through 3, you see Paul established Gentile guilt. And the Jews at that point are probably saying, yeah, get them, Paul, get them, Paul. Then he establishes Jewish guilt. And then he says, there's none good. No, not one. All have turned aside. All have fallen short. None seek God apart from God seeking them. That's in Romans. So Jew and Gentile need the gospel. And the gospel has been taken here in this context and even today in, the, in, in our world to both Jew and Gentile. That's the whole world for a Jew. It'll help you read Scripture better. It doesn't always mean each and every single person. But Jew and Gentile, everybody. One salvation, one Savior, one Lord, one faith, one new man in Christ, Ephesians. So the gospel is going forth on the road, and the gospel is going forth in Jerusalem, and people are being converted in large numbers. James said how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. So don't listen to silly people who might try to tell you that the Jews don't need the gospel. I don't know if any of you listen to John Hagee. Please don't. But he'd be one who would say foolishness like that. Sorry if it upsets you if I call people out. It's part of being a shepherd, warning you against the wolves. Okay? You may not receive that, but there are people out there that are not good for you to be reading and listening to. Health and wealth, all that crowd. No. Jew and Gentile need the gospel and God is accomplishing His purpose and He's saving all of His people made up of Jews and Gentiles through the proclamation of the gospel. And James has said, just like through your ministry and a number of Gentiles have believed, just here through the gospel ministry a number of Jews have believed. One gospel for Jew and Gentile. One way of salvation. I mean, you heard it in Psalm 51 when I read it. In sin did my mother conceive me. We are born sinners needing a Savior, both Jew and Gentile. doesn't mean David's mother was sinning when he was conceived. It means he was born in sin and needing a Savior. And that's true of you. Children, that's true of you. Born as cute and lovely as you are, you need an answer. You need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. Everyone in here is either in Christ or needing to be in Christ. God didn't leave us with the bad news that we were lost and needing a Savior. But He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, took on a true human nature and entered into humanity with great glory and pomp and circumstance in a manger. Singing, angels singing over shepherds instead of the palace. 
Jesus came at just the right time, Galatians says, in order to fulfill all righteousness for His people. What He said to John the Baptist, He kept the law in thought, word, and deed. He deserved only blessing. He had a righteous standing of perfect obedience, and yet He came not just to fulfill the law, but to pay the penalty for His people's sins. So He died on the cross, suffering the physical agony, yes, but suffering the wrath of God, justice due His people. He drank that cup dry for us, buried and raised the third day so that you might have salvation as a free gift. So unless you can keep the law in thought, word, and deed from the cradle to the grave, you need a Savior. Good news. One has been freely provided, and it is Jesus. If you will turn and trust in Christ, you will be saved. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised the third day. He appeared to more than 500 people at one time. Many convincing proofs of His resurrection. He's ascended and He's reigning to see this gospel go to the ends of the earth. And God, read the end of Acts chapter 17. God commands, because He sent His Son, He commands all people everywhere to repent and to trust in Him. We don't like language like that, do we? You can't command faith. It's got, you can't command me to love. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He commands us to turn. Why would He do that? Because it is for our good and His glory that we trust in His Son. Don't refuse Him. See, that's the report here. The Gospel's going forth through weak and needy vessels and people are coming to faith in Jesus. But there's a bad report. So we've seen the good report. Here's the bad report in 21 and 22. James says this, he said, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed? He said, watch this, they're all zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That word forsake, word we use for apostasy. To forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So, what, according to the story that's going around, what the people, the Jewish believers who are going to hear and what the way they're going to interpret it is that the apostate that's teaching everybody to apostatize has come to town. And James is saying there's a false story circulating about you, giving people a false interpretation about you, and therefore we need to do something about that. See, there's a false story circulating that is creating unnecessary division in God's church. And we need to quell that because we need to do everything we can do for, to fight for the unity. Read, read Ephesians chapter 4. We need to be about, passionate about maintaining the unity of the church. And James and Paul both are concerned about that. I'm concerned about that. There are lots of false stories that circulate these days. There's lots of mess that circulates. There's lots of people who will take a half-truth and make a whole truth out of it. Therefore, it is a what? Lie. There are undependable sources out there. I only mention these people. I don't mention them to turn you toward them. I mention them to you for you to avoid them. But just in case you are listening to them and reading them, pulpit and pen, J.D. Hall, they're masters at twisting the truth. 
And they are, they are doing everything they can do to assail some believers rather than to maintain their, their proper reputation. They are fundamentalists, independent fundamentalists who, who don't think and don't think the best. And they'll take a, like I say, they'll take truths and cobble them together and create a false story about good brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you are listening to Pulpit and Pen, if you are reading Pulpit and Pen, if you like Jordan Hall and his ministry, I would advise you to find a better one. There are a number of so-called discernment ministries out there that do nothing other than tear good people down. Don't get mad at me. Or you might. Do some research. And I'm happy to talk with you if you want to talk about that. But see, false reports are circulating and dividing the church in Jerusalem. And they want to do something about that. So look at Paul's vow. And this is the thing that might make us scratch our heads. And there's some men who interpret Scripture who say, Paul was wrong to do this. He shouldn't have done this. And that's not true. I mean, we do see him at the end of it get arrested and all of that stuff. But James has proposed a solution, and I think there's a better way to interpret it than that. In verses 23 to 26, look at it. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know, all will know, that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself live in observance of the law. So James's solution is to point out some men who are taking a vow and to ask Paul to participate in that vow, even to pay for those men to participate in that vow. What he's probably talking about it is a Nazarite vow. And so during the vow, often 30 days long, it was a time of special dedication to God. It could be for gratitude for something or seeking something or seeking just to draw near to God. It, uh, it was a time when there was to be have the, the person going through a Nazarite vow was to have no wine or no strong drink. Not even grapes or grape juice or things like that. Now notice, that's a special vow. I probably shouldn't even say this. Communion wasn't done with grape juice until Pastor Welch and his legalism had pasteurized grape juice in 1860-something. It was done with wine. It's not a sin to have a glass of wine with your meal or, or anything like that. It is a sin for the wine to have you and to be addicted to that. A lot of people who will make foolish arguments about, you know, if you have a cigarette, you go into hell but you can eat all the fried chicken you want to. That's destroying the body. Just as I mean, this was a special vow when they were to abstain from these things. The other parts of the Old Testament presents it as a good gift and an appropriate time for various things. Jesus created real wine at the wedding in Canaan in Galilee. The best of the wine. We just have to get over that. Those are the words used. It was wine people could, and he trusts people to use his gifts responsibly. But they were not only to avoid wine, strong drink, and grape juice, they were to avoid contact with anything defiling, like if you read the Old Testament, a dead body. They wouldn't cut their hair until the vow ended. So you see the hair cutting coming out in the vow. And then they would cut their hair and present an offering. 
And so James is saying, Paul, if you will participate with these men in this Nazarite vow, which comes from Scripture, Old Testament, it's a, it's a true, true vow in that context. He said, then all will know that the things they've been told about you are not true. If Paul participated, it would show that he did not, now this is key, he did not object to Jewish converts voluntarily following Old Testament customs so long as these customs were not required for Gentiles and they were not put on the level of the gospel. They were not for justification. But he had no qualm with Jews keeping their customs. In fact, we've already seen Paul in chapter 18, 18, it said he was under a vow. So Paul is still sort of practicing the customs that he, he grew up with, but he's not practicing them as though they're the gospel. He's not looking to them to make him right with God. In fact, in, in chapter 16, we saw him circumcise Timothy. Why? Not so Timothy would be saved, but Timothy's daddy was a Greek and his mama was a Jew. And in order to remove the offense, he had Timothy circumcised because Timothy was going to be one of his close companions on the mission field. And their, their, their common practice was to go into the synagogue first and then out from there. So they still reached out to Jews. main ministry was to Gentiles. See, Paul's being asked to act with cultural sensitivity for the sake of unity. He's being asked to do that with the Jewish context that he now finds himself in, but without compromising the gospel. James says, Paul, if you will do this, then they will know that what they're hearing about you is not true. And we, say th we think things like, well, yeah, but didn't he... Didn't he speak against circumcision and keeping days and months and seasons and years and all of that sort of thing in the New Testament? Yeah, he did, but the context was the Judaizing heresy who were saying that the Gentiles had to do those things in order to be saved. There's people around now that will tell you that you still need to be keeping the feasts and all that kind of stuff in the Old Testament. That's not true. If you want to do a Passover meal to learn from what was done, to see the example and, and bring out how Christ fulfilled that, I mean, there ain't nothing wrong with that. If you think any of that makes you more holy, there's a big problem with that. So Paul is being asked to act with cultural sensitivity. He's being asked to do what he would not have disagreed with. He's being asked to voluntarily show by his life that what the, the false stories that are being circulated about him and creating division and cutting people off from hearing his, him and his presentation of the gospel, he's being asked to show that that is not true. So what will he do? Well, look what he does. First in verse 25, it talks about the Gentiles. As for the Gentiles who have believed, we sent a letter with our own judgment saying that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. So that was the conclusion of the Jerusalem council. Should, do the Gentiles have to be conserved, uh, circumcised and keep the law in Moses in order to be saved? The Jerusalem council says no. 
That doesn't mean there's no regulation of their life. There's still a, a moral component to the old covenant that comes over. But God, I'm, I'll send you back to that sermon if you want to hear more about that or sermons from chapter 15. But they said, we've already handled the Gentile thing. And the Gentile thing is not really the issue. It's the Jewish thing and how the Jews are being lied to about you. So what would Paul do? Look in verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the, who, what men? The men that were, James said were going to be part of this vow. Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So Paul is taking this suggestion of James in the Jerusalem church. He is going to do what they have suggested. He's going to go with these men. He's going to take this vow. He's going to pay for their sacrifices in order to quell all false stories about him. So what Paul does is sacrifice his freedom. Did he have to do this? He didn't have to do this. He could have said, James, dude, this is, this is your circus and your monkeys in Jerusalem. You handle this. My calling is outside. And I need to go on to Rome and all these other places. So, so I don't know what's going on in your house, but you need to fix that. Paul didn't do that. But he sacrificed his freedom because he had a strong passion for the unity of the church. You see from Romans how much he loves his Jewish brethren and wants them to both have unity in Christ and come to faith in Christ. He has a strong passion for the furtherance of the gospel. He wants to keep the main thing the main thing and not be distracted by all these peripheral issues. So he agrees to participate in the vow and to take on, notice it didn't just cost him laying aside some of his freedom. It cost him a little bit, of, I don't know, maybe not a little bit, a good bit of cash. He was willing to pay personally and, and fiscally to quell this false story. So when you read Galatians and you read books like that, what Paul is refusing to do is have anything replace the gospel or add to the gospel. And that's why he's so um, holy, in a holy way, vicious against the Judaizers and wishing that they would cut themselves off and, and you know, all of the language that's there. And it's a false gospel that they, sh that even if an angel brings a false gospel, it should not be received. But he, Paul was not against Jewish believers voluntarily, voluntarily walking in the customs that they had been raised in. Yes, it's sort of the kernel and the shell of all that, that administration, that covenant, but, but there was nothing wrong with that if it wasn't replacing the gospel, if it wasn't something that's adding to their righteousness. But why did he agree to take the vow? One of, there's a main reason. There's a thing I want to highlight, the reason he agreed to take the vow. And it's because of his, what we might call these days, his philosophy of ministry. His, what drove him? What are the principles underneath he, him taking this vow? What was he thinking? Now, we've highlighted his passion for unity and his passion for the gospel. But it's interesting that he had written something to the Corinthians previously. Right? This is about A.D. 58 when this is taking place in Jerusalem. And probably somewhere around A.D. 53, 
54, he had written to Corinth from Ephesus. So he's already written this. And I, and I just want to highlight it for you and you can go back and study it some more if you want to. But one of the things we see in Paul, we see in Jesus, we see in Paul, we see in Jesus' followers who are faithful. What the gospel, when it's rightly understood, it makes us a servant. It doesn't make us people who demand that everybody serve us. The gospel makes us a servant, a bond servant, one who's willing to sacrifice himself for others. So look at what Paul had said, and I'll, I'll let you go back and read more of the context. But in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, he's, he's saying, For though I am free from all, now watch this, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Though I'm free from all, I made myself a servant to all. Why? Because of God's grace to him in Christ Jesus. Now watch this. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. So I'm not going to be nitpicking people that I'm around about things that are lesser issues underneath the gospel. I'm going to become as much like them as I can and keep the main thing the main thing. And the gospel is the main thing. And that's what he's seeking to have delivered to the Jews who don't know Christ and to keep them in the Jews who do. Unity. But to the Jews, now watch that. To the Jews, I became a Jew. I mean, he, he was a Jew, right? But he counted all that loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And he said, to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I become as one under the law though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. What does it mean to be under the law? Seeing the law as an analogy, a ladder we can climb to to God, seeing it as a covenant of works, seeing the law as I must do this in order to be made right with God. Jew and Gentile born under the law, needing a Savior. But especially Jews having the law, many times misinterpreted the law and thought it was a way for them to establish their own righteousness. He said, to those under the law, I become as one under the law. Though I know who I am, I'm not under the law. Now, in verse 21, to those outside the law, I become as one outside the law. Important clarification. Not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. In other words, he doesn't chuck the moral law in order to be a witness. He doesn't contextualize that far. Right? There's no difference between the commands of God and the law of Christ, and it's not this special thing. Christ, all he did was live out, fulfill, expand upon, and teach God's, God's moral law and apply the gospel and commandments. But he says, he says I'm not sinning to reach people. I'm not, I'm not, by the way, I had a guy one time tell me that he went to strip bars with his friends so that he could reach them to, for Christ. Yeah, has he faces me? I'm like, dude. That's surely a misunderstanding. You're a little bit too free, bub. You can go with them to the door. Once they go in, we don't violate God's commandments in order to reach people for Christ. I smoke weed with my pals so I can reach them with Christ. No doobies for the Christian. I'll let you expand upon that. 
But Paul says, listen, to those outside the law, I don't get in their lives and start nitpicking at everything I see. But I don't participate in sin with them either, but my goal is to reach them with Christ. He says that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, watch this, strong Christians. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Why do you do it, Paul? I do it all for the sake of the Gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So to the Jew, I become a Jew. To those outside the law, outside the law, but I'm in law in Christ. I'm not violating God's moral commandments. To the weak, I become weak. That's one of the things... I. One of the mistakes I see among Reformed people in the church, especially when they are newly Reformed, but sometimes they've been Reformed for a long time, is they parade their freedom. Now, I'm not saying that you have to live under the tyranny of the weaker brother, but I am saying that you need to love them and do everything you can do not to make them stumble. And when I see some of my brothers who I love and I know love Jesus posting on Facebook with their latest fattest cigar and their latest drink in their hand, I I get a gut punch when I see that. Because people are easily... It's easy for people to misunderstand. It's easy to offend people who are weaker than you or have a different understanding than you. And if you're doing all things for the Gospel... Am I saying it's wrong to have a cigar? No. It's wrong to have too many. You know what Charles Spurgeon said too many cigars was? Two at one time. (laughs) You know, that's between you and God. Is it wrong to have a glass of wine with your meal or, or whatever? No, I don't think it is. And for biblical reasons, and we can talk about that if we need to. But I think it's wrong to parade it. I don't think that's what Paul did. He said, if it makes my brother stumble, I will not drink wine or eat meat or anything else. In their, you know, obviously intended in their presence. So Paul is shaping his life to the gospel as best he can and to the people he's around as best he can so that he can keep the main thing, the main thing, which is Christ and the gospel, unity and growth in grace and salvation. So he would not sin to be on mission. He would not compromise the gospel. Galatians, you can see that. But he would sacrifice himself and his resources in any way necessary to see the gospel go forth and see the church unified. And that's what he's trying to do. He's not violating the gospel by taking this vow because he's not hoping in this vow to make him right with God. But he's keeping the main thing, the main thing. What we see in Paul in this example is what we talked about already. Self-sacrifice for the unity of the church and for the sake of the gospel. Freedom is a blessed thing. Freedom, Christian freedom in Christ is a blessed gift. Use it wisely. And be willing to sacrifice it to reach people in Christ, with the gospel of Christ and to see His church unified. Paul said in Romans 15, 1-3, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's what Paul is trying to do here. For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. So why did Paul do this? 
He did it in order to protect and preserve the unity of the Jewish segment, especially of the church, and to see that the gospel continued to go forth. Paul was willing to pull back on his freedom in order to preserve the unity of the church and to see others come to faith. He was willing to pay the price. Quite literally, he was going to pay the price for their, their vow, but he was willing to go with them so that it might be seen that he had not just chucked his Jewish brothers and sisters in the faith. See, being on mission requires self-sacrifice. And Paul, like Jesus, is sacrificing himself to keep the main thing the main thing. True mission preserves both the unity of the church and the promotion of the gospel to those who don't yet believe. And Paul is setting a good example. Simply following his master who sacrificed himself to deliver us from the wrath to come and to grow us up as his followers. You may have not heard anything else I've said today, but I want to ask you a question before I let you out of here. Are you trusting Christ and Christ alone for your salvation this morning? Have you come to the point where you see that what you deserve from God is condemnation and you have turned to and received Christ as your salvation? You've had that change of the direction of your soul which results in a different life. It's called repentance where we, we, we're born running from God and, and doing everything to, to satisfy ourselves. We'll even use God to sort of build our kingdom. But when God's Spirit's at work, He turns us from rebellion to submission. We repent, we turn, and we, by faith, trust and receive Christ. And I'm asking you are, you, are you turning or have you turned? And are you trusting Christ? There's no other way. So if no, if the answer is no to that, then repent and trust Jesus. And I would suggest do it today. But if so, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and you would have Him be glorified in your life, then go and be willing to eat grubs. See, I just want you to remember that as a picture of be willing to sacrifice yourself for the unity of the church and for the promotion of the gospel. Go and be willing to eat grubs if that's what it takes to preserve unity and promote the gospel. Remember the main point that we were trying to draw out of this, that we, like Paul and like Jesus, should be willing to be all things to all people for the sake of the church and of the gospel. It's not about me. It's not about you. It is really all about Jesus and the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. So let's do that as we see what this text teaches us. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your, for your grace for those who are not trusting you yet. Maybe even very small ch children under the hearing of my voice. Be at work in each heart that is not rested in you this morning. And be at work in each heart that is rested in you. 
Help us to make life less about ourselves and our comfort and more about you and your grace and your gospel. Help us to sacrifice for our brothers and sisters to preserve and maintain the unity of the church and help us to sacrifice for our neighbors who don't know you to take the gospel to them. Help us to be as much like them as we can, to not argue necessarily over lesser things if we know they don't know Jesus, but to be making and keeping and straining to keep the gospel and our love for you and our love for them and seeking to reach them as the centerpiece. Lord Jesus, thank you that you would come and, and seek us, that you would live for us and die for us and be raised and that the Holy Spirit would apply the gospel to our hearts so that we would come to life and then come to faith in you. Preserve and nurture and grow that faith. Make us self-sacrificers for your glory and for our good. People who love you and love neighbor and seek to reach them with the gospel. Lord, strengthen the weak that are here today. Comfort those who are struggling. Lord, to heal the sick. Clarify the confused. Humble the proud. Help us not to forget your word. Send us away to ponder and think and meditate and discuss and grow in living for you, Lord Jesus. We give you praise and we entrust all this to you. We pray to the Father, in the name of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by your Spirit. May your will be done. May your king, kingdom come. May your name be hallowed in all the earth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.